You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 93. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Today, I have a very special treat for my listeners. Welcome to the first part of my interview with the amazingly versatile voice actor, Phil Lamar. Phil's roles in animation run the gamut, from Hermes Conrad in Futurama, to the John Stewart Green Lantern in Justice League, to Kit Fisto in Star Wars Clone Wars, to the title character in Samurai Jack. I'm so grateful to Phil for taking the time to share with us his unique perspective on voice acting. In this first episode, we focus on his very early career. Phil talks with me about some of the challenges he faced after college when he made his first serious attempts to break into the entertainment business as an actor. While he did not feel like he made much progress initially, it turns out the challenges and frustrations he faced ended up helping him focus his attention on what he truly wanted to achieve and on what it would take to accomplish his goals. But I'll let Phil tell you about that. And now, the feature segment. Well, welcome to the podcast, Phil. It's so fantastic to have you here. Thanks so much for coming to join us. Thank you, Crispin. Thanks for having me. Which is hilarious because I've actually come to join you. Right. Because <laughs> we are at Phil's fantastic studio. It's all virtual. It's all virtual. We are here and we are there. We are everywhere. It's all holographic. <laughs> We're this little voice in your ears. We don't really exist. Um, so I, I've really been looking forward to getting to come together with you and talk about voice acting because... I really get, like to get people who have sort of unique takes on acting, and especially voice acting, um, who can really share different facets of what it takes to be a voice actor. So for my audience, can we just get a quick little bio about um, how you got started in voice acting and, and some of your sort of major roles? Sure, sure, sure. Um, actually, my start in voice acting was literally the start of my professional acting career. Uh, in high school, I got a job on a cartoon uh, produced by the Ruby Spears Company, which was sort of the poor man's Hanna-Barbera. Right. Um, if you can imagine, even cheaper backgrounds. Well, they did Thunder of the Barbarian, didn't they? I'm sure. <laughs> what do we? Well, the what I worked on was the Mr. T cartoon. Right. And um, yeah, that was my summer job in high school for a, a couple of years, and it got me my SAG card. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm now, I think. I think I'm already vested in my pension because <laughs> I started at 16. Yeah. Um, but obviously, that was, I perceive that as a summer job, not really as a career. Right. Um, and after that, I went to college, um, came back to L.A., uh, began pursuing acting, because uh, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I started pursuing acting as an actual career um, and almost quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came home, spent a year, got nowhere, hmm. 
and thought, oh, well, maybe this was a mistake. This was after college. This was after college, yeah. yeah. And then I stopped and I sat down. I, you know, I was living in, I think my mom had kicked me out of the house. Well, not kicked out, but like, let's work on your exit strategy. <laughs> um, I had, was sharing an apartment in Venice um, and just sort of wondered, okay, what am I doing? Like, should I be doing something else? Right. And then I stopped and said, well, okay, before you abandon this, ask yourself, have you tried your best? Have you done everything you could have done and still gotten this result? Right. And I realized, no, hmm. I hadn't done everything I could have done. Hmm. I did everything I was comfortable doing, everything I felt should be done by people, but I'm not going to sell myself or take a commercial workshop or, you know, I'm like, well, why not? Hmm. And so I got out of an idealist frame of mind and into a more pragmatic frame of mind. Okay. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are full of BS. Uh -huh. And I'd run into a few of them in that, in that year. And like there was one woman, uh, she was the agent of a friend of mine. Um, he said, oh, you should meet my agent. And I met with her, and she said, oh, okay, well, you know, she looked at my college resume or whatever, said, all right, I'll, I'm going to hip pocket you. Mm -hmm. And whatever that, that means. Yeah, you had no like, idea what that meant back then. Well, I, I, I knew. It's like, okay, so you'll be my agent without being my official agent. All right. right. But this is a woman who would have her agents go pick up her dry cleaning hmm. and, like, yell and scream at people. And I'm like, this is not how... I, this is a business. Why, 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 why is someone trying to do your errands? Yeah. But you re I realized that there was a real dysfunction. I think uh, in that same year, um, I did a community theater play where I played uh, the title character in, a, in the show, the, A Dog's Life. Hmm. You've never heard of it. Oh, okay. It was written by some random dude in Brooklyn who sent it to these people in Altadena. Uh, and apparently, instead of putting their old folks in homes in Altadena, they make them do community theater. Oh. Because everybody was 70 plus. Excellent. All right. And they were very sweet people, but, you know, it was, it was not good. It was the septuagenarian players. And, yeah, and we, we, the play itself was horrible. Okay. Um, and I'm sure we were all horrible in it. <laughs> in fact, we actually started with one cast that was like, oh, these people are not bad actors. They all quit. Oh, dear. One by one, and were replaced by people less good. Mm -hmm. And every day as I would drive to rehearsal, the 40 minutes it took me to drive from Venice to Altadena, I was like, I don't have to go. They're not paying me. They're not going to come find me. I don't even think they know where I live. <laughs> I could just turn around and, and go home. And go home. They'd find the 60-year-old the woman who thought she was a lock for the, uh, the dog part would, would jump right in, you know. <laughs> Give her a chance. Right. And I'm like, no, you made a commitment. Mm -hmm. When this is all said and done, you're going to be glad you stood by your word. Mm -hmm. And we did the play. It was horrible. Um, and, and I remember having a moment after we, we wrapped the last performance... I was like, huh, I should have turned around. <laughs> but uh -huh. there was a little old woman who saw the play and thought I was darling and handed me a letter uh -huh. after the play uh -huh. 
I'm like, when did you, I'm thinking to myself, when did you write this? Yeah, intermission? What? Right. <laughs> uh, recommending me to her old agent. Okay. And I called him up, gave her name, got a meeting, and I met with this guy, and it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. He was very, like, an old-school 80s agent. Like a heavy-set guy with a beard wearing a tracksuit and chains and wow. uh, had, a ho- had an office up on Sunset Boulevard. So, what are you? What do you do? Uh, I'm, I'm an actor. I act. No, 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 no. What are you? What type are you? You, you, you Butterfly McQueen type? And I had walked into this meeting saying, be positive. Right. And so he says this to me, and I'm thinking, how can I say yes to this? Because like, my thing is, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to find a way to say yes to things. And yeah. like, I... <laughs> well, if you mean, can I play that energy level? Yes. If you mean, am I a fat black woman? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no laugh. Wow. All he says is, Butterfly McQueen was never fat. You're thinking of Hattie McDaniel. Butterfly McQueen was the other one. Prissy? Remember Prissy? I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. And I'm just so stunned and staggered thinking like, if I wasn't so confused, I would be horribly offended. Yeah. And I was just like, uh, no, no, I'm not a Butterfly McQueen type. And in my head, I'm like, okay, we're done. Yeah. And I finally relax, as opposed to, like, tensing up. Yeah. And he goes, good, because I already got one of those. And he had showed, showed me a headshot of a young black guy who could only charitably be described as a young Jimmy J.J. Walker. Okay. From his headshot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wearing a hat, eyes bugged out, making a funny face. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not that. Yeah. And so for 20 minutes, I sat there with this guy and the whole experience was like that. Just like, what? Uh, I don't, what? No, I don't, huh? Um, perhaps, I, no, well, I went to, I, uh. and at the end of it, like feeling like I'd just been like mentally just like gut punched for 20 minutes. He's like, so, you want to go meet the rest of the office? And I'm thinking, why? So they can <laughs> abuse me too? And then he walks me outside and he's like, ladies and gentlemen, this is Phil Lamar. And he proceeds to, I don't even know when he looked at my resume, but he recites it back. You know, and he's like selling me to the rest of the office. I'm like, what happened to the, the horrible person that I was just talking to? Yeah. <laughs> and Flutterman's like, well, uh, you talk to Amanda, she'll uh, get you done with the paperwork. Uh, I'm like, what are we? Uh, that, so this is good? Wow. And he was my agent for a day and a half. He got me an audition that day. Uh-huh. It's like, uh, like as I left, I get a call. Hey, you gotta do the oh, okay. Um, actually, wait, do we have cell phones back then? No, we had pagers. Hmm. Um, he got me an audition that day, and another one the next day. Um, but I was dealing with some family stuff, and I had to uh, I was getting my grandfather out of his house, and I had to go like downtown to do official paperwork to like get deeds, changed names, and something like that. And they said, well, I need you. Someone's, where is some player at three? I'm like, I, I, I can't. I have to be downtown. I don't know how long it's going to take. Well, you need to decide what's important. I'm like, well, this is important. This is my family. We had this argument. And, and he goes, I don't think this is going to work. Hmm. I was like, 
Yeah. Uh, and I was like, again, another gut punch, like, oh my God, I had an agent and now he's, he's saying I, I uh, but I knew like, yeah, okay, I, I think you're right. Wow. So I left the office and back to not having an agent, not having anything. And was all this before you asked yourself if you had done everything? Yeah. This was, this was the, this is how I spent that first year. Oh my God. And so, you know, you can see why I was looking, thinking to get out. Yeah. Um, but then I stopped and I said, have you done everything? And I said, mm, not everything. Yeah. And so the next year, uh, I, I signed up for a cold reading workshop because the awful agent woman who, like, wanted a cult, not a client list, yeah. had said, you need a cold reading workshop. You don't know how to audition. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I said, Pfft. You, you don't know. I did Tempest, bitch. You don't know me. <laughs> um, but then I stopped and was like, well, you know what? She is an idiot, mm. but even a broken clock is right twice a day. So I, I don't know mm-hmm. that I don't need that. Mm-hmm. So I signed, a, I, I don't know, Backstage West, something. I don't know where I found it. But mm-hmm. There was a, a guy, former casting director, who was giving a cold reading workshop. Mm-hmm. I got scraped my pennies together and signed up for it. Mm-hmm. Um, did I also start taking Groundlings classes again? Because I'd briefly taken a Groundlings class, but that was really less a career thing Mm -hmm. than a personal thing. Because I'd started doing improv comedy in college, and I just loved it. Mm -hmm. Just loved it, loved it, loved it. Well, you founded the improv group in your college, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a, yeah, we took our name, The Purple Crayon, from a a children's book about a kid who makes things up. Mm. Um, And, yeah, a friend of mine, Eric Berg, had spent a summer in Chicago taking classes at Improv Olympic and Second City, and he came back and said, guys, he got a bunch of us that he had uh, done plays with the year before and said, I think we could do this. Do what? Because none of us had, it, there was a long form improv form called the Herald that mm-hmm. he had discovered uh, working with Del Close, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who had created it and who was just this genius. Um, and he sat down and like described it to us and was like, oh, that sounds cool. And so we spent several months learning this form in the abstract. Mm-hmm. Like everybody in Chicago, you know, there were a lot of people learning it in Chicago at the same time, mm-hmm. but they were watching other people do it mm-hmm. and listening to Dell talk about his concept for it. It's like a, it was at the time thought of as you take a single suggestion from the audience and you play with it. You push it, you prod it, you poke it, you, so what does it remind you of? And you go off, mm-hmm. you use it as a, a jumping off point and jump off as far as you can. Mm-hmm. Then you know, through monologues or, you know, physical work or whatever, just walking around, then you start doing scenes. Mm-hmm. And the scenes are based on wherever it took you. Hmm. And then you build the scenes and, you know, eventually maybe the scenes start to cross over into each other. Character from one scene might go into another scene. And uh-huh. in an ideal world, you'll, you'll narrow the scenes down to three. Those three scenes will continue forward in time or maybe backwards, who knows. Uh-huh. Then they may build into a single scene... And then you find yourself back at the original suggestion. It's, it's sort of a theme in variations. You're building an entire narrative play out of the suggestion of a seed of something. Right. And you're trusting that all the actors have not only enough sort of 
individual inspiration to come up with ideas, but also enough group awareness yes. to help each other mm-hmm. build this cohesive narrative together. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and at the time, especially, it was so unlike anything I'd ever experienced because there's no director. There is no prep time. You don't go, hey, uh, if somebody says, you know, our, our suggestion is drums. I had this. Uh, you, nope. You take the suggestion and start. Right. And you bounce off of other people. You know, somebody may say, when I was a kid, uh, I had this little drum set. And my sister had the, had an Indian headdress. And we would play. Da, da, da. And then somebody else might come out and do a monologue. Not based on the drums, but maybe based on something in the previous monologue. Mm. Yeah, I, used, I was a big, you know, Indians fan. I grew up in Cleveland, and blah, 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 you know, and you just find yourself going as far afield, and that's the purpose: is just to go to tap into imagination, mm-hmm. and then let structure find its way to you. Right. You know, it's yeah, and it would it would be amazing how many times a group, especially groups that had worked together before, and it's not like oh he's going to do that old thing. It's just like. I feel where we're going. Let's go together towards this thing. And you find yourselves going from these disparate interpretations of this single thing, building toward a single focused, mm-hmm. you know, interpretation. And like the audience would just sit back and go, how did they do that? It's like they wrote it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because it would be a big reveal at the end. It's like, how do you reveal something you don't know? Yeah. Right? But the, and, and that is literally the moment. Like the, the improviser will be on stage and introduce a box, and l- start to lift the lid of the box, and he has no idea what's in the box. Yeah. Until he opens until he the opens imaginary it. box. Yeah. And he may not even say what it is, but somebody else will, and it will seem as if they both knew yeah. the whole time yeah. what was in the box. That's fantastic. Oh, it's so much fun. That, that um, wow, that is not dissimilar from the kinds of experiences I was having in grad school um, with sort of more experimental uh, Peter Brook, Grotowski, oh, you know, no. messing with bamboo sticks and, you know, working with all the crazy actors who worked with Peter Brook at the National Theater and whatnot. Right. Um, this trusting that when, if you actually can see the person in front of you as the animal that they are, this is right. something we said in grad school all the time, mm-hmm. I may not know your history, Right. But I can tell what kind of animal you are. Right. Like, I know how you run. And so I have a feeling mm-hmm. that if I go this way, you're going to follow me. And we're going to find a way to the end of the path that's right. going to be so much more fascinating that if we sort of left-brained organized it algebraically from the beginning. Right. It's going to reveal a structure that's already inherent that we don't mm-hmm. have to worry about. Yeah. Um, it'll take care of itself right. as long as we ride the rapids and then, oh, look at that. We came out the other end. Who knew? Yeah. And, of course, you know, delving into that led me into fractal theory. And But it's it's all in, in, in those same... Because I'm a skeptic in terms of, you know, astrology and, you know, aliens and all that. But I do believe that there is power beyond the prosaic, what we see every day. Mm-hmm. And to me, it is seen in that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that if you open yourself up to it, um, you can sense the core of a person you've never met. Mm-hmm. Just on what you take in, mm-hmm. you know. 
but anyway, this this was all a very long tangent to yeah, say. So much for a brief intro. I know. <laughs> but Sorry. this is good. No, no, no. This is the good stuff because I think what happens too often in interviews is that you get somebody's resume. And so we'll recite the resume and everyone will think, well, how in the world did they get that resume? Right. Right? And it just looks like they just snapped their fingers and they were in all this stuff. Mm. And people don't understand the level of fascination, of uh, commitment, of effort, of practice right. that goes into be able to doing that. They think, oh, I, I would just be, it, it's a shame I'm not born with that voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that singer that I like or, right. or you know, it's like uh, they had to work at that. You know, mm-hmm. no, uh, there's very few people who are born with that voice. And when they are born with that voice, it only looks that way. Yeah. Ever since they were a kid, they were fascinated with stuff. For instance, I heard a little rumor that when you were a kid, you played with a tape recorder. <gasps> yes, 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 yes. That's which is funny because I generally in my head don't associate that with what I was doing. But yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine, the kid across the street, one year for his birthday, got a cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. Like the old-fashioned thing where you'd put a tape in and you press the record and play button yeah, at the same time. it had a speaker on the top of it. Like yeah. it was all one big thing. Right? Yeah, and a little handle there because mm-hmm. it was portable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had one. And we just... And these are not intellectual kids. These were like, this guy went on to play high school football and everything. It was like, but we just would sit around with the, the recorder on the bed and just, like, talk into it. Mm-hmm. Hey, what are you doing? Like, watch the little red, you know, volume light go off. And, yeah. on, yeah. and then we'd stop and play it back. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Dude, your voice sounds weird. Shut up. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, let's do something. And then what do we do? We took, like, uh, there was a kid's magazine called Dynamite Magazine, mm-hmm. and they had commercial parodies in the back. Mm-hmm. And it was always called. And now a word from our sponsor. And it'd be like a joke, you know, Mad Magazine style joke com- commercial. And we would read those into the mm-hmm. into the uh, recorder. Mm-hmm. And I would go, and now a word from our sponsor in my deepest voice. Right. Which was that. Um, <laughs> and then he, I would act out one character. He'd act out the other character. And then, oh my God, now you're, now you're reminding me. Then we started... Creating these in, these insanely long improvs, uh-huh. Because he had a record player, so we'd like, all right, I'm going to be the DJ, and, and then you guys come attack me. And so like we started, it's like, all right, this is Radio Coast, we're doing, and we're going to play a song. Hey, wait, what's that at the window? And we do like, like you know, foley basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, somebody's coming through the window. Ah, and like slam a, a ruler on the desk. Oh. Oh, oh, and basically it would devolve into nine minutes of fighting. Oh, I'm going to kick you in the face. Oh, my eye. And, but I realize now that we were improving the entire thing. Yeah, you're making little radio plays. Right. <laughs> you were doing slapstick yeah. when you were a kid. You didn't even know. Oh, my God, it's so funny. And I, that's what I think happens. It's that if someone looks like they're a protege at a very young age right. or if it seems like their 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 talent just comes out of nowhere it doesn't mm-hmm. if we went back and listened to those tapes i'd bet you'd probably feel a little embarrassed <laughs> yes, right because exactly. they'd be so silly but how else did you learn you were right. you, that's how you learned and you learned because you were fascinated enough with it that you couldn't just leave well enough alone right like a painter I remember an acting teacher of mine said, how do you look at the world? If you're a painter, you look at the world in a certain 
certain way, right? And if you're a pointillist painter, you reduce everything to dots. Right. And I remember walking through a park once, and I suddenly, my animator eyes came on, right? Oh, cool. And I thought, because I'm a big fan of Miyazaki, and they always do, in, in his animated films, they always do these lovely, lush landscapes. Right. And I was walking through a park and thinking, well, if I were to animate me walking through this park, how many layers of animation would I need <laughs> so that the trees would look believable when mm -hmm. they moved? And, and I went, oh my God, I'm looking at this like an animator. Yeah. If I was a physicist, I would look at this completely differently. Right. And whatever that fascination is that's in you, you're, you're not going to be able to help but mm -hmm. look at what's going on and what's happening. The entertainment industry attracts all sorts of characters. When you're first starting out, it can be difficult to tell what sort of behavior is normal and what is eccentric or downright weird. Both Phil and I have experienced our share of people in the industry who are more bluster and hot air than talent and dedication. However, we both needed to have those experiences. They helped shape us into who we are and helped us decide what we valued as artists. Sometimes it takes a little pressure, emotionally and professionally, before you're honest enough with yourself to decide what truly matters to you and what you're willing to do to accomplish your goals. I'm grateful to Phil for his candor regarding this process. In the next episode, we go into more detail about Phil's early television career working on the improv show Mad TV. We also discuss how he transitioned from that show into his voice acting work. I'm sure you'll find it very enlightening. Until then, all the best to you in your voice acting endeavors. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.